And we're back with another episode of Awareness Action Enneagram Podcast. My name is Creek, and I'm with my jubilant or or less than jubilant uh, co-hosts. I don't know. You you decide. Uh, Mario Sikora and Maria Jose Munita. Uh, today we're talking about the core quality at point seven. Joy um, party party time. Um, oh. <laughs> I have had coffee today, so yeah, um, apparently, yeah, yeah. I'm also running on very few hours of sleep so yeah, I, it's a weird drug um <laughs> what did you all what did you all eat today what's what's been consumed thus far what brought you joy this morning mm. well I, I i i will say usually i've been in this routine where i usually have been making a good breakfast of eggs and you know whatnot but today i was in a little bit of a hurry so i had a, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on toast oh wow which, uh, wheat toast um which I quite enjoy on occasion. Well, this is, this is a very important question. What's the peanut butter? What's the jelly? Uh, strawberry preserves oh. for the jelly. No, no. Okay. <laughs> so what's um, wrong with it, Craig? Yeah, and um, and it, it's got to be uh, it's got to be chunky peanut butter. I think I think we really? usually get. I, I don't know what brand we get wow. to be honest. So you're not a creamy peanut butter guy, are you? <laughs> You do grape jelly too? Oh no, or, no, 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 no! Orange marmalade, <laughs> raspberry, all the way with seeds. Yeah, yeah well, you know. Anyway, I'm like getting the seeds in my teeth. Maria Jose, what brought you joy this morning? What'd you eat? Is that supposed to be the same question? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Did it involve uh, avocado, Maria Jose? That's, it that's did not. I thought know. of it, okay. but mm. I was in a rush as well, so I didn't. I do like to have a toast with avocado as you're mm. bringing up, but I oh, didn't. You're such today. a millennial. Well, I'm such a no. South American who yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we do that a lot. Avo- avocado, avocado is a yes, a, a staple in, in Chile. Yeah, we have it. Yeah, all times. It's just a yogurt and a toast with butter. That's it. Wow. I really enjoyed it. Well, how about you, Creek? Oh, I'm sorry, Maria. Is that no, no. <laughs> That's it. Um, I, I I had a couple of pistachios and a cup of coffee, so that's that's where I'm at today. Yeah. Well, that was a really boring conversation. <laughs> Should we move on to some, something else? Yeah, let's let's talk about the core quality of uh, point seven. Mm-hmm. Mario, why don't you fill us in? Uh, core quality at point seven, and what is what is how do we define joy? So. Yes, the core quality of point seven is joy. And, um, you know, it's interesting because, as our listeners may recall, we change things over time, right? And uh, joy is one of the one of the names that I've wrestled with because it has an implication of something more active, more exuberant, right? Um, you know, we differentiate between feeling good and feeling joyful, for example. Um, and I was reading in preparation for this, uh, what I think is the best book on this topic. Uh, and it's the book of joy by the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, uh, which I, I highly recommend. I think that the, are you showing it, Mario? Do you realize that people people are not going to see it? So so given that this is an audio only (laughs) uh, medium. So anyway, I, I highly recommend, uh, the, the book of joy and, when they're talking about joy, they're, they're not talking about this idea of exuberance, right, of, you know, what we often think of as the stereotype around point seven. 
they're talking more about the just kind of a, I call it a heightened feeling of well-being, right? So it's contentment mixed with pleasure. It can involve happiness. It can in involve excitement to some extent, but it's really just a feeling of strong well-being independent of external stimulation from our point of view. And what happens with the seven early in life, the, and the little seven in each one of us, I have to be careful about saying that because here I am repeating language that we always kind of criticize, uh, but this, this core quality of, of joy inside of us becomes stunted early in life. And so we start looking for external stimulation to make us feel good, right? Treats, toys, food that brings us pleasure, etc. Experiences, fantasies of experiences, and so forth. Whereas the quality we're talking about here is not dependent on any of those things. It's more of a natural state. It's more of a internally created state that just feels good. Maria Jose, would you add anything? I was just thinking about uh, today's world full of so much stimulation and how mm. difficult it is for kids to experience that, let alone mm -hmm. for adults, but, uh, but even for kids with, who are supposed to experience that more naturally, um, they need, and they're getting used to more and more stimulation all the time, something in their hands that they're interacting with. So it was kind of a sad thought. <laughs> mm. um, I, so I'm, currently in Denver um, on my way to LA, driving out to LA, and I'm staying with some friends, and yesterday I started playing with his kids, and we had a good old-fashioned snowball fight, and it went, it went on forever. I'm like, mm -hmm. how are you not tired of this yet? <laughs> but, but I'm like, listen, like, this is like, this is, this is what childhood is made of, is just like yes. being so exuberantly in love with whatever it is that you're doing. And yeah, that was just a very great, it was a really great moment for me. And then they asked yeah. me to stay for two months. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so th this speaks to the challenge of joy and the challenge of the seven, right? I think Maria Jose hit the nail right on the head here that once we become dependent on external stimulation, for our well-being, for that hit of dopamine that we're all searching for, it becomes never enough, right? Um, you know, one of the uh, great, uh, I don't know, sort of uh, analogies for the struggle of the type seven is uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, there's what's called the hungry ghost, right? So these different ghosts that represent the different challenges we face. And the hungry ghost is this, or the hungry demon is this demon with a big fat belly and this long skinny neck, right? You know, kind of like the size of a hose. And so he has to feed this big giant belly that's always hungry and always hungry, but he can only force so much food you know, into his mouth and down his throat. And so there's always this feeling of dissatisfaction. And that's what can affect the seven. And as Maria Jose is implying, the seven in each one of us or the, you know, seven-ish aspect of each one of us that is trying to replace joy with stimulation or excitement and are doomed to failure with that. So can we talk about what, what does, what is actual joy? feel like how do we experience that 
um, without constantly having a new dopamine hit, something new on the horizon. So again, all, most of these things are like a state rather than something that we're doing. And there are definitions for it. Uh, what we say is that this strong feeling of well-being independent of external or internally uh, manufactured stimulation. But it, it is something, when I think about it, it's like, we don't like the word energy, but like this light that fills you in. Like it's light, it's kind of, I want to say positive, but it's this feeling of being okay without being extremely excited or anything that it's that we would think that could be too you said exuberant but i don't know too much it's just being okay it's almost peaceful but light yeah. and fills you with uh, this contentment it's um you don't need to be doing anything or you can be doing something it but it's not dependent on it I like your use of the word peaceful, Maria Jose, because even though that's something we usually associate with point nine, with nines, the peacefulness that they're seeking is almost like a narcotic-induced mm. peacefulness, right? It's an absence of feeling, whereas this is a feeling of peacefulness uh, in the presence of feeling, right? And in the presence of engagement with things. And it's not... It's almost as if when you're feeling this, whatever you're doing at the time can be interchanged with something else immediately, and you wouldn't notice the difference, right? So if you take a toy away from a child and give them another toy, you see this, this drop in um, enthusiasm and engagement, and then it picks back up again as they start getting used to the new toy or switch to the new toy if they're, you know, engaged with it. But... When you're in this state of contentment that we're talking about, it's not affected by what's outside of you. Okay? And if we go back to, uh, you, you know, some uh, other ideas related to this, um, actually, let me first go to this this feeling that Maria Jose was talking about. And it was been interesting to me as we've been discussing what each of these core qualities feel like to think about that. And uh, to, to what's the analogy? So when we talked about the eight and vitality, we talked about this outward flowing energy, right? This thing that comes from inside of us and then flows outward. And when we talked about compassion, we talked about this feeling of merging. So there's kind of a moving toward, but also absorbing in. And when we talked about the four, we talked about this sort of, you know, uh, point of light that's indivisible and uh, and independent of everything else. And then we talked about objectivity. We talked about this sort of almost like glass or marble kind of feeling of cleanness. And as I think about what this feels like, it's, it's a, there's a warmth to it, but there's also a breaking down of boundaries, not in a negative or positive way necessarily, but just as a um, as a connection to what's happening in the world around us in an unmediated quality or an unmediated form, meaning I'm with it, I'm experiencing it, I'm feeling it, but I'm still me, right? I haven't lost myself. I've kind of 
dismantled the barrier. And this applies in a number of ways. Like whenever we, uh, you know, uh, are engaged in, you know, a flow state, for example, you know, to use a, a common terminology, we lose our sense of self in a way, but in a way that feels good and in a way that helps us be more effective and more engaged and so forth. So there's almost this breaking down of barriers and boundaries that is part of this quality. As I'm thinking about points in my life where I, where I feel like I've felt that sort of sense of joy, what's often accompanied is wonder. And are, are those, would you say those are mutually arising? Are they, are they the same thing? Like what's, is, would you differentiate that at all? I don't know. To me, they're just are at the same time. I, I'm not sure that you can define what comes first. I think that you could make the case for both uh, because you feel this wonder, you feel the joy, or because you're able to feel the joy, you are able to feel the wonder. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. Um, yeah. I do see this as the source of wonder in a way, right? Because, you know, if you go back to... Um, um, there's a uh, scientist named uh, Jock Panksepp. I, th- I believe he died recently, but I'm not sure. So Panksepp uh, wrote about, he, his most famous book was called Archaeology of the Mind. And he talked about emotional systems in mammals, and he identified seven of them. And one of them was a play system. Okay, So if you look at almost any mammal, there's this aspect of playing right? Kittens play, little chimpanzees play, little children play, and so forth. And there's this drive to explore, to experience, to understand. And so that sense of wonder, that sense of play, I think is all very rooted to this quality, okay? I would also put in, you know, the pleasure uh, that we seek in life, you know, and, and just, you know, the enjoyment of things, I may have told this story before, but I remember doing a uh, team building session and one client there who was a seven at some point, almost apropos of nothing, you know, stood up and said, you know, I get up every morning and think to myself, if I wanted, I could have a slice of pizza today. And he was just, he was a kid in the candy shop, Mm. right? Just at that thought. And it wasn't, oh, I've got to get some pizza or I'm not going to be happy if I don't get pizza. It was just, you know. If I wanted to, I could. And, and everybody looked like, at him like he was crazy. But, but I got where he was coming from because that is sort of the higher end of seven, of just this wonder and amazement and satisfaction and just feeling like, man, this is, this is how it should feel mm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some ways in which joy can be distorted? Now, what's an immature version of that? So the immature version of it is, um, number one, is dependent upon external stimulation. Uh, number two, it's fleeting and it's hard to maintain, right? So it, it, it's something that, you know, we become acclimated to pleasure, you know, very quickly. This is why people become drug addicts or coffee addicts or whatever it is, right? So um, the... Um, <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> hey, no, I, I, no I, I put myself in that category. <laughs> I'm on my second pot already today. So, um, <laughs> so 
so, but it's, you know, the effect of a thing is fleeting after time. We've become habituated to it. And so the immature version is always looking for something different. And this is the challenge we see with sevens. You know, I, you know, again, when you look at the literature of sevens, it's talking about how they're, oh, they're optimistic and they're happy all the time. And, you know, they always see the bright side of life. And then you start living with them. And you start to realize, man, oh, man, that's only part of it, right? Or you get to know them better and so forth. And you start to see the perpetual dissatisfaction that bubbles up because it's, oh, I thought this cake would be better. Oh, I thought that movie would be better. You know, whatever it is, they can get so excited about the ideal of something in their mind and the need for that stimulation that almost nothing can actually live up to it. So they bounce from you know, high to high to high without really absorbing or engaging or feeling at a deeper level. Okay. So that's the immature version. Now, of course, you know, the mature version we, we've talked about, it's this feeling of well-being independent of that stimulation. Not that stimulation's bad, not that we shouldn't take pleasure in things that are pleasurable. That's one of the other things that I, I really enjoyed about this uh, uh, book of joy was that pleasure's fine. Right? There's nothing wrong with it, except when it's overdone. We become dependent on it. We distort it, and we use it to replace something else. Yeah, I like our description of the mature version is attentive heartfulness because it, it is kind of I'm there in the experience, not looking at how it could be or thinking about what's coming next. I'm there in the moment, and my heart feels full with that. I don't need anything else. When I think of this strategy and kind of think about some, some friends that, are, um, that have this strategy, this, they exhaust themselves constantly trying to do the next thing and find the next hit of some sort. And then they wonder why they're so burnt out and not happy. <laughs> it's like, I'm doing all the things that make me happy. What's, what's wrong? It, yeah, it's just slow down for a second and, yeah, take a breath. And this is what happens with all the core qualities. We, it, because we become stunted and don't understand the real thing, we try to replace it with something else. And it becomes like trying to scratch an itch that's on my left shoulder by scratching my right shoulder. It feels like I'm doing the right thing, but that itch isn't going away, and I'm not sure why. And it's going away because we're doing the wrong thing and trying to address the wrong problem. And this is where our strategy can come into play, right? This striving to feel excited uh, can become a substitute for this need for uh, cultivating and nurturing joy. But again, is there's a perpetual disappointment and frustration that we can see in sevens. And they still have this ability to experience these joy and wonder at times. Um, I mean, the sevens that I know, I mean, s several of them see things that I just pass by and don't even notice. And they just enjoy that. And it's very simple things. And that, that's an important point, Riose, because, you know, just because these things become stunted in our development doesn't mean that we don't display the mature version of it 
at times, right? And I think particularly with our analogy of the acorn and the oak tree, it can give the perception that there's this sort of linear and, um, you know, very specific, either you're an acorn or you're an oak tree or you're at some, you know, point in between. Uh, The reality is, however, is that, you know, we all do, we all act maturely at some points and immaturely at other points in every area of our life. Okay. So the the goal here is not to, you know, go from being immature to mature necessarily, but go from being more immature to more mature, okay, by nurturing that quality. And I think it's not just about the internal sense of joy, but I think it's it's sharing the joy. It's I mean, if you've ever had anyone be almost more excited about something that's happening in your life than you are, like it's such it's an act of love, honestly. Yeah. It's like, oh, wow, yeah, you're right. My my life is kind of cool. Like this thing that's happening to me. Wow. Okay, I see it. I see it for what it is. Like they they see the potential in a lot of things. Absolutely. You know, for me, it's hard to talk about type seven and um, particularly hard to talk about joy without talking about the Dalai Lama because he is, for me, the best example that I have seen on this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting, listener, I'm getting, I'm getting looks and faces because, uh, you know, my my co-hosts here are wondering, is he going to go off the rails here and say something inappropriate or is he going to tell one of his humble brag stories again about, you know, being in the same room with the uh, Dalai Lama? One of the two. Yeah, it's, so it's going to be the latter, okay? okay. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I did have the, the good fortune to attend a reception that the Dalai Lama was at years ago in, in Washington. He and, invited you to attend, I, I imagine. Yeah, you know, he sent his guy, you know, over and, you know, and um, said, hey, Mario, are you, are you busy Friday? You know, no. So it was, you know, look, I, I glommed on to an invitation from a friend who, you know, got to go to this reception. And um, even though I didn't get, you know, particularly close to the Dalai Lama, I could observe him in the room. And what was this reception was for? It was number one, a fundraiser, but number two, he was meeting with some Tibetan monks uh, who had just come over from India or somewhere and had never met him before. And, you know, for them, meeting the Dalai Lama is a really big deal. Okay. So what would happen is he he would lean in and he would press his forehead against theirs. And they would have this moment that was honestly one of the most emotional things I'd ever seen because what was happening here, even though no words were being exchanged, there was just this flowing of of good intent, of well-being, of positivity, of recognition, right? There was this moment, and it wasn't in a way that we generally associate with the point two of this sort of compassionate, how can I help you merging? It was just, let's just be completely present in this moment together and experience each other wordlessly, okay, without having to do anything but just be here without imagining or without thinking of any boundaries between ourselves, Okay. So it's this, you know, and, and this is the high side of seven is like you said, they can just exude this positivity, but it doesn't have to be this rah, rah cheerleader. No, you can do it sort of positivity. It's just this, Hey, everything's going to be okay. 
or let's look at this bright side and so forth. So this is really, you know, when we get back to what this, this feels like from an energetic perspective, it's this dissolution, dissolution of boundaries or barriers almost between myself and my experience or this other thing that I'm experiencing. So I'm in the moment, I'm in the experience, I'm feeling everything all at once, right? Which is a big part of this, right? I, I am feeling all of this and experiencing it without losing myself. And that is what's happening here at its highest level. Can we talk about how the the core qualities um, at the connecting points interact um, with joy? So the, the connecting points for point seven are point one, uh, striving to feel perfect, and point five, striving to feel uh, detached. The core qualities at those points are objectivity for point one and intuition for point five. There are several ways, but I think that for point seven, point one, the objectivity at point one allows for when you get rid of all these preconceptions and pre prejudices and see things for what they are, it's easier to enjoy them. It's easier to just be there in the moment with what there is and not be thinking about how it could be, how it should be, or what I could have. And it's just what is. So moving, I mean, I'll, I'm going to touch on the um, accelerator as well, but when you accept things for what they are, it's easier to feel the joy. And I think that's the work and the interaction between point seven and point one. So the accelerator at point seven, uh, we call savoring. Uh, Maria Jose, can you tell us a little bit more about savoring? Yeah, this is a practice that seems pretty simple, I have to say. And, but I think when you're trying to practice it, it's quite difficult. And it is to just stay in the moment and extend the experience and find pleasure in it. So if I'm enjoying something, well, instead of five seconds, let's spend 10 seconds doing that and, and so forth. So try to extend that time that I experience these pleasure and things. Uh, whereas, where they be intent, I mean, external or internal, I can just be experiencing something, thinking about something, um, and just stay there a bit longer. What sevens tend to do is move on to the next thing too quickly, planning, anticipating, and they don't, and all of us don't tend to not stay long enough to feel these heartfelt experience that uh that it's the joy and correct me if i'm wrong but like to me there there's no way of actually savoring when you're in a rush when you're constantly trying to optimize and be efficient it's i, I think there's a way after a while to be able to quickly savor something it doesn't have to be a 15 minute meditation on your coffee but like but i think you have to start slow you have to start being inefficient and non-optimized and awkward with it in order to actually learn how to savor 
and get into that mode more quickly. Yeah. And I think that it's uncomfortable what you're saying. It's like, okay, uh, I've had enough. I need the next thing. And it doesn't have to be, as you say, 15 minutes of it, but long enough to really be there in the experience so that you can feel the joy or more of that joy. And we also have to understand that not everything needs to be savored, right? Yeah. Um, and so, and, and, and you you're both hit on something important here. It's that savoring goes away when our minds go somewhere else, right? So, you know, for those of you who drink coffee, um, there's nothing like that first sip of coffee in the morning. And unless you drink what Mario drinks, I mean, well, still, you know, I don't, I don't need my fancy take three hour pour over things like you do. that just tastes like dung heap coffee beans anyway. But, um, so, <laughs> but, but the, the reason that first sip tastes so good is because you're actually present for it, right? You're thinking, man, I can't wait to have this. And you're actually tasting it and you're feeling the warmth and you're smelling the smell. But then after that first sip, your mind starts to go somewhere else. And now you're just trying to dump it down for the caffeine hit or whatever it is. Okay. So, and, and this applies to everything. It's the food we eat. You know, when we're there and experiencing it and present to it, it's heightened. We experience this kind of joy we're talking about. But as soon as our mind starts to go somewhere else, we've finished the thing without enjoying it, without realizing it. Okay. And again, you know, sometimes we eat just to get food into us mm -hmm. and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm going to, you know, I have five minutes, I got to dump down a quick sandwich. Right. So I don't need to sit here and savor every bite, but it's a practice that we want to develop by doing it deliberately. And someone can fact check me on this, but I, if I remember right, biologically speaking, we our, our taste buds, yeah. taste it once and then remember what it tastes like yeah supposedly but that doesn't mean that you can't continually to like re-enjoy it every single time correct yeah. there there are some physiological changes yeah. that happen as well that dilute the pleasure but but the biggest part of it you know even in mm -hmm. addition to that is our mind being somewhere else yeah we haven't talked about the connecting point uh point five. Oh. Point yes. five is intuition and it's the non-conscious competence and insight. And for sevens, there's also these sense of incompetence that they have, that it's hidden in this search for stimulation. And, but it, it kind of hurts most times when you talk to a seven seriously or intimately. All of the ones that I've talked to feel this sense of incompetence in some domains, at least. So working on that point, on this intuition, which is this non-conscious competence that I develop through conscious practice, allows them to really feel more joy as well. So it's not, again, we've said this several times, it's not that they become a five or that they are a five sometimes. It is all linked. It's a profile. It's a, it's a dynamic that they all nurture each other. So if I feel more of this uh, intuition, mature intuition, would probably feel more joy. The other thing coming to my mind um, is 
you know, when we talk about these feeling states, right, that the, you know, the seven, the feeling that we're talking about of joy is this warm, glowing lack of boundary, whereas the four is this, you know, indivisible quality and the the one is this, you know, sort of harsh, not harsh, but hard, um, clear, smooth, strong, you know, uh, feeling. We shouldn't neglect any of them. We shouldn't view one as better than the other. We shouldn't think we can feel them at all, all at the same time, right? There is, you know, human, the human experience is to be responsive to what's happening to us. And so there are times when we want to feel this boundaryless state, you know, the Dalai Lama pressing his forehead to the monks. Uh, and there are other times we want to feel this, you know, this, uh, uh, this independence, this indivisibility, this, no, I have boundaries, right? So it's all circumstantial. And the work that we're trying to do here is to recognize when we need to experience one of these and when we need to experience another and to, you know, work with them to the degree that we kind of switch without having to consciously and deliberately do so. Okay. So I was, I always like to, you know, remind us that this, this is a constant, you know, expression of different states in response to our circumstances. And what I'm hearing there is just the acceptance piece of yes. whatever state, whatever you're, you are experiencing in front of you, learning to savor even the most painful things. Uh, I mean, perhaps this is a bit more of a four way of thinking, but yeah. <laughs> um, put that in your coffee and drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it is like, it's as long as I don't get caught up in the negative emotion for me, like, and obsess about it, it, it shows me what I value um, when I get sad, when I'm, when I'm grieving and it, and it helps me savor the moment. Like if, if I'm putting up the Christmas tree with, with my family, there's like, Oh, this will not always be a thing. There'll be a time when my parents are not there. And it's, it sucks a little bit of the funness or joy out of it, but it's also like, oof, this is, this is really sweet. This is a sweet moment and I need to cherish this and savor this. Yeah. So in, in, in the book, the, the book of joy, um, the Dalai Lama makes a really interesting distinction between pain and suffering. And he says, we have to experience pain because that's the nature of life, but we don't necessarily have to experience suffering mm -hmm. if our attitude about pain is correct. Okay. And so he, he distinguishes suffering as kind of this mental state that's locked into or trapped by a feeling of pain and brings additional discomfort and additional, you know, lack of well-being that we don't need to experience, right? And if we don't recognize that pain is part of life, that someday, yes, I'll look at that Christmas tree and my parents won't be there anymore. And what the, the trap that sevens can fall into is, oh, I don't even want to think about that, right? I, I can't imagine that. And just the thought of it makes them sort of flee off to some happier thought. And what ends up happening is that when these bad things do happen, these unfortunate, these painful things do happen, they end up suffering more because they're ill-prepared for it, 
Right. So part of the growth, and, and again, this is one of the beautiful things that the, the four brings to us, or the point four, is this recognition that pain is part of life. And we can't experience pleasure without understanding pain. Okay? So uh, part of the work of the seven is to become increasingly comfortable with painful experiences rather than fleeing them. Because fleeing painful experiences doesn't allow us to integrate them, and it ultimately causes a lot more suffering, which I think is one of the reasons why so many sevens, despite the stereotype, tend to suffer from depression. And there's, I don't have statistics on this, but just anecdotal experience would lead me to think that you know, suicide rates might be higher in sevens than there are in, you know, most of the other Enneagram types. Okay. I, I've certainly been my experience that depression can be. So let's, as we're wrapping up here, let's, let's give a couple practical things um, that people can easily implement to begin to cultivate joy. So working with the strategies helps, and it could be working with your own at point seven, starting to feel excited. When we work with the awareness to action process and start expanding the definition of excitement, uh, we can make it more permeable, more inc inclusive of other things, and maybe start changing our narrative to, I will not feel more excited if I do more things. I will feel more excited if I am able to stay with the experience longer, for example, and things like that, how I reframe the way I think I will accomplish this excitement uh, might help me nurture as well the core quality of joy. Same thing with point one and five, with perfection and detachment. When we were talking about these um, suffering and pain, I think that when you work on detachment and think about how detaching from certain things and it's not just avoiding but when you think about i will feel more detached if i am able to i don't know think about those things for a while and then put them kind of in their place but not avoid them i will feel more detached because otherwise it's kind of haunting me because the, the thought keeps coming back and i think about what if this happens no no, no i don't want to think about it well Maybe a more effective detachment is when I think about those things for a while and then leave them aside. Same thing with uh, perfection. I will feel more perfect if I... Can you think of an example there, Mario? Well, yeah, so an experience needs to be perfect. Uh, the mm, seven can yeah. fall into believing that an experience needs to be mm. perfect in order for it to be fun. Right. Um, the, the cake has to be perfect and delicious and the, the bottle of wine needs to be exactly right or the TV show needs to be perfect or whatever it is. You know, the party needs to be perfectly planned or else it'll be disappointing and people will criticize me and so forth. So uh, it 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 like the one can experience the, you know, the perfect being the enemy of the good is a trap that sevens can fall into as well. And they need to be careful of I could also see it's like this thing was not how I imagined it or it wasn't perfect. So yes. I'm going to reframe it. I'm going to forget about certain things. I'm going to leave things out in order for me to believe that it was perfect. 
Absolutely, because I have to maintain that fun, excited, mm-hmm. positive mental yeah. space, especially when I'm relaying this to other people. There's a big difference between what sevens want to relate to other people and what they actually experience themselves mm-hmm. that I think we always have to keep aware of. There's one more thing I want to say before we wrap up here uh, that's kind of a growth step for sevens is learning to love the plateau. And what I mean by that, as we develop any skill, any experience, and even something that's fun, because sevens, you know, many sevens, you know, they do lots of different things, right? They'll play guitar, they'll play piano, they'll paint, you know, they'll do this, they'll do that. But learning always involves a plateau. You get to a certain point where you feel like you're making progress every day and every time you do it. And then you get to a point where you, you feel like you're not making any progress. with lifting weights, right? You get to a certain weight and it's like, man, I just can't get beyond this. But we all know that you have to keep at it. And then eventually the plateau ends and you start rising again. And what often happens with sevens is that the plateau is boring for them. And so they cannot become great at things that they might otherwise be great at if they don't learn to love the plateau or at least endure it better. If I can quickly further the analogy with weightlifting, it's instead of moving on to a completely different exercise and a completely different program, it's like, no, keep doing the same thing, but decrease the weight and do more reps or like just do a slight variation to to change it up a bit so that you have some level of new stimulation, but it's, but you're still working on the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think of, I think this is from Tom Condon actually, where he, he's like, when you're trying to deal with difficult emotions or something like that, it's all right from seven to eight, I'm going to go sit in my bathtub and cry. And then when it hits eight, I move on. Like it's just, that's my cry point. And then I, (laughs) I do other things, um, at other times. So awesome. Well, thanks everyone for listening. I have an image in my head. um, (laughs) I'll I'll never quite get out of Tom Condon sitting in the bathtub. Tom, Tom, if you're listening, um, yeah, yeah, I'm envisioning bubbles, you know, so no (laughs) worries. Yes. Yeah. The nice sparkling rosé. Um, okay. Nice. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. If you're interested in more information or talking to Mario, MJ, or myself, feel free to reach out to us through the links in the show notes or by emailing info at awarenesstoaction.com. All episode transcriptions and further information can be found at awarenesstoaction.com slash podcast. Thank you.